This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the line from the studios of WOSU in Columbus, Ohio, is Professor Joan Cashin of the History Department at The Ohio State University. Joan's the author of a recent book entitled War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. And she has a companion book that she edited entitled War Matters, Material Culture in the Civil War Era. Joan, welcome to the journal. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. First of all, we got to do the good old South Carolina thing about who you are, who your people, and where did you come from? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm a native of Atlanta, Georgia. My ancestors on both sides of the family uh, have lived in Georgia for a long time, uh, but also South Carolina, uh, North Carolina. Okay, and where'd you go to school? I went to college at American University, and I got my doctorate at Harvard University. Okay. You're taking an entirely different look at the war, or really how the war had an impact on the land and and the people. And I'd like to, to talk about your introductory essay to War Matters mm-hmm. and how you define material culture. Uh, sure. Well... Over the course of my career, I was always interested in material culture. I mean, I was always taking notes on it and, you know, on various research projects and and whatever I was working on, if I would come across something surprising, startling, shocking regarding material objects and human beings and what people do with those objects, I would write it down <laughs> and put it aside. And then about 10 years ago, I realized that there was really a book to be written here, you know, both the, the monograph, War Stuff, which came out with Cambridge last year, and also this book of essays, uh, War Matters, which came out with UNC Press uh, last year. And people in different fields have already done a good deal of scholarship on material culture, uh, anthropologists and archaeologists obviously leading the way. And they have debated uh, this issue off and on for decades. How do we define material culture? And I mentioned that debate in the introduction. The definition that I like best is by uh, Henry Glassy. He calls it the tangible yield of human conduct. But there's been a vigorous theoretical debate about how we define material objects, uh, what is the nature of the relationship between people and objects, do objects have agency? Uh, That's an argument put forward by a French scholar named Bruno Latour. Uh, Whether or not people agree with him, those ideas have nonetheless had a big impact on the field uh, for the last 20 years or so. Thinking back to graduate school days, under George Rogers, I began to use ephemera and photographs, play tickets, invitations. All of this gave a, a more complete picture of individuals about whom we were writing about. Exactly. And, and I, I saw that very same word many times on research trips. You know, there, there, there would be the manuscripts and then there would be a box called ephemera. <laughs> Or sometimes it would be called miscellany, you know? <laughs> and, and it it would include not just the the objects that you mentioned, uh, locks of hair, mm-hmm. jewelry, scraps of cloth, pressed flowers, you know, all all, all kinds of things. Uh, so obviously, those objects meant something. They they must have meant a lot to human beings in the past, or they wouldn't have bothered to preserve them. I know that collection policies have changed at research libraries now, but I can remember Mm -hmm. when scrapbooks, particularly women's scrapbooks, were offered. They were rejected. Mm -hmm. You know, who cares about the clippings (laughs) or the, the pressed orchid? But it was, as you said, not just a view of her life, but what she considered important mm-hmm. in her life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the same was true for recipe books. You know, women would keep their favorite recipes, you know, sometimes recipes that they had gotten from their mothers or their grandmothers or even farther back. 
And until quite recently, scholars tended to dismiss that as ephemera, <laughs> as something that is not interesting, a little quaint, you know, maybe even kind of cute, but not really uh, a new way that we could think about food history, you know, diet, history of entertainment and hospitality, gender, obviously. And etiquette books, I think, fall in the same category with scrapbooks and recipe books. They provide a window into the world of women, the household, you know, new ways of thinking about new topics. So I, I'm, I'm really happy that scholars have begun to pay attention to all these different kinds of uh, sources and different kinds of objects, too. You open your introduction with a, an interesting discussion of Frederick Douglass and, mm -hmm. and his wife and things that meant and were of importance to them. And I think this is something that everybody listening to us can relate to. Yes. Uh, the, the Douglases, of course, were natives of Maryland. And in the 1830s, uh, they left uh, Maryland. Frederick Douglass was a fugitive slave. Uh, his wife, uh, Anna uh, Murray Douglas, was already a freed woman. But they uh, left and resettled in Massachusetts and set up their own household. And they worked very hard for the objects that were inside that uh, house in New Bedford. And those objects clearly meant a lot to them. When they uh, moved later to Rochester, New York, they took a lot of those housewares with them as, as souvenirs. And decades later, when Frederick Douglass was visiting that house in New Bedford, his, his daughter was with him, and she recorded this amazing uh, series of comments that he made. You know, he remembered that house vividly. He remembered the objects within, exactly where a towel was hanging on a wall, for example, because they were symbols to him of his freedom and of their independence, the fact that he and his wife had been able to escape and start a new life and live as free people in Massachusetts. And they continued to collect and preserve all kinds of political uh, souvenirs or political relics uh, throughout their lives. They had photographs of the various abolitionists that they admired hanging on the wall in the house where they eventually settled in Washington, D.C. The site, uh, Cedar Hill, is uh, still standing and open to the public. It's, it's a marvelous facility. They also had a walking cane from Abraham Lincoln himself. The widow, Mrs. Lincoln, gave that walking cane to Frederick Douglass in 1865. He said it was a sacred object to him. You know, sacred is his choice of words. And he said that he would always treasure it and he would keep it as long as he lived. And in fact, he did that. One of the things that you mentioned after the Douglas story is the late antebellum period saw a world of goods available for the middle class for the first time. And yes, people have always displayed, those who had money have always displayed, but now you've got ceramics, you've got metal, not to mention books that mm -hmm. are prized possessions and being handed down in the, this decade before the war. And soldiers are going to war with books, and that's a story we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, but they all care, seem to carry a memento. You talk about a locket with a lock of hair in it, things that remind them of home. Oh, absolutely. Soldiers are very careful about taking some object with them into the military. Uh, they describe this in their letters. Sometimes the objects are actually returned to the families if the soldier happens to die in combat or, or dies of illness. Uh, that, and that seems to mean a lot to them, something tangible, something they can hold on to, something that is uh, a physical connection to their life at home, to their loved ones. And then during the war itself, a lot of soldiers also collect artifacts as souvenirs of the experience that they're going through. <laughs> and I found all kinds of amazing information about that, as did all the contributors. We've got 10 essays, which are wonderful in my opinion, <laughs> uh, about all these subjects. In my essay, I concentrated on uh, artifacts from the revolutionary time period, and I concentrated on the parts of the South that were among the 13 original colonies, uh, Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. 
And I found that uh, soldiers in both armies are fascinated by the physical relics of the revolution. And soldiers in both armies feel that they are upholding the principles of the revolution, you know, whether they're in the Union Army or the Confederate Army. So they want a tangible uh, object, something to connect them to the revolution. And the ideal way to do that, if possible, is to get an object connected somehow to George Washington. You know, Washington, the military hero of the war, the first president of the United States, uh, Washington's home, Mount Vernon, where he was buried, had tremendous uh, symbolism for both sides. And there was much rejoicing in the Union in 1861 when the Union Army captured Mount Vernon. Uh, the symbolism was perfect from the Northern perspective, and there was much gnashing of teeth and disappointment in the South that, that this place of all places had been captured uh, by uh, the federal troops. But nonetheless, there are other places in Virginia associated with him. Uh, for example, the church that he attended, uh, that church is just emptied out <laughs> by relic hunters from both armies. You know, they, they want a piece of his life. Uh, the pew where he worshiped is probably the first thing to go, but the soldiers take just about everything out of that uh, building. And there are many other relics that are in the soil itself. There are a surprising number of weapons or parts of weapons that can still be found in the earth itself in Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. Relics uh, from the British Army and from the American Army, you know, pieces of muskets, pieces of cannon that are out there in the terrain. And people had been uncovering those objects before the war, and they continued to do that uh, during the war. So, so these are objects that, that have kind of a double duty, we might say. You know, they, they represent the revolution, but they also represent the soldier's experience during the Civil War because they want to connect themselves symbolically and literally uh, with the revolution itself. One thing soldiers do is those who triumph on a particular battlefield will take a souvenir from the fallen foe. Mm -hmm. I think about growing up with World War II veterans who had all sorts of memorabilia that had come from defeated Germany or Italy. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, I, I had uh, several neighbors uh, when I was growing up in Atlanta who were combat vets from World War II, and they had their relics. And three of my uncles also served, and they had their relics. And those objects seemed to mean a lot to them, although some of them were clearly uncomfortable talking about the objects. I mean, the objects seemed to be so heavily freighted with deep emotion that they seemed kind of uneasy talking about it sometimes. And of course, you know, now from the perspective of adulthood, I recognize that it may be because those objects also were associated with terrible memories and the death of friends in combat and so on. We talked about things being passed down. Having worked with several estates in the last five years, and included World War veterans, went into the basement, one basement, and there were two footlockers full of uniforms and manuals that this officer who had served in, in France after the war, his life was in that box. Hmm. And it, it, it had been there since World War II. Amazing. Well, the state of Tennessee uh, around 2011 started this marvelous project whereby they would photograph uh, Civil War artifacts that private individuals in the state still had in their possession. And there were hundreds of them. And they posted them on the website. I think it's on the website of the state archives, and it may still be on the website for the state government of Tennessee. But I was just astonished at the sheer number of objects and the variety of objects. I mean, there were uh, all kinds of things, the typical military uh, artifacts, guns, bullets, cannons, parts of cannon, and so on. But there were also some jackets, <laughs> you know, army jackets that had been carefully preserved, you know, from 1865 to 2011. You know, obviously the descendants of taken very good care of such an object. Uh, hats, blankets, handkerchiefs. I mean, it was just a tremendous array of objects. And that in itself was, was very interesting. 
uh, to me that that so many things had been saved and that they had been so carefully preserved uh, by the generations uh, since the war. I think lots of people feel that uh, having some kind of physical artifact is a, a special experience. You know, it's different from reading something, even if it's a manuscript, an original manuscript. It, it conveys information at a whole different uh, level. And I think that's one reason why, to this day, there is still this uh, thriving market in Civil War souvenirs. I mean, and people want a piece of it. You know, they want something that they can put on a shelf, that they can hold in their hands and say, this is a part of the war. Joan, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Joan Cashin of The Ohio State University about material culture and items related to the American Civil War. All right, Joan, let's move from War Matters, which is the collection of essays, to War Stuff. Both of those titles are intriguing because War Matters, was that an intended pun? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, we debated several titles, and, and yes, it is a pun. My philosophy with book titles is that whenever possible, they should be short, easy to say, and easy to remember. And the subtitle can be long and descriptive. So uh, I thought War Stuff is short, easy to say, and easy to remember. <laughs> and the subtitle explains the argument, the struggle for human and environmental resources in the American Civil War. All right. That might be a little bit complicated. Let's, let's elaborate on that because, again, I really like the way you've, you've introduced both books because you, you open them with a human story. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one you start off with is from Amity, Louisiana in 1861, the war is less than a year old. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just relate that story? And that gives us the entree into the rest of the book. Sure. Well, the opening anecdote is about a young woman living in this small town in Louisiana. Uh, I think it's pronounced Amit. Amit, okay. I think. I asked several people in uh, Louisiana about that, and that, okay. that may be the most common. A young white woman is living there in 1861, Sarah Wadley. Uh, she kept a diary. She leads a rather comfortable life. Her father was a railroad executive who was a slave owner. And she kept a detailed and thoughtful diary. She described what happened to one of her neighbors, uh, an overseer, a white man named David Waters. And in September of 61, uh, some Confederate troops camped in his yard. And at first, everything was friendly and civil. But then things got unfriendly. Uh, the Confederate troops stole some of his fruit and damaged some trees on his property, and Waters got angry. And he said he would shoot anybody who plundered his property, and one day he did shoot a Confederate soldier, and he killed him. Uh, Waters himself escaped, but the soldiers took their revenge on his property. They took his home apart. <laughs> they, they disassembled his house, raised it to the ground, and then tore down his barn, uh, his fences. They actually set fire to several buildings on the property uh, while the females in the Waters family watched in a state of horror. And the neighbors and townspeople were equally horrified, and they were afraid that maybe this rampage would continue and target other families and other households. So they uh, set up kind of a volunteer guard to protect property in this town from Confederate troops. You know, these are rebel troops. These are not Union troops. And the controversy did not uh, escalate. There were no more house burnings or looting on that level. But Sarah Wadley, who was pro-Confederate, like a good many of her family members, was just stunned by this and writes about it at length in her diary. She, she's flabbergasted that what she called our own soldiers did this. So I open the book with this anecdote because it shows that Confederate troops and uh, Union troops took resources from civilians, 
They sometimes damaged uh, resources for no reason other than you know, anger or revenge. And more generally speaking, that, that policy about how soldiers are supposed to behave in the field uh, doesn't really affect behavior that much. Uh, that, that policy is one thing, but actual conduct out in the field is often very different. I think it's interesting, and you make the point several times in the book, particularly when things happened in the South, white Southerners, and especially white Southern women, were frequently dismayed or even horrified at the mm-hmm. conduct of the men in gray. I think about the closing days of the war, and the, whether Union or Confederate, officers were never completely in control of what was mm-hmm. going on. <laughs> yes. I found that over and over again. And, and the articles of war are very specific about banning plunder and pillage. And then the Articles of War have been put together in 1806. Uh, but during the war itself, uh, both armies uh, say they are going to abide by the Articles of War. But I found out that, uh, as you just said, that many of the officers are just barely able to keep control of the men in the ranks. And some of the officers themselves also violate policy. And also, I found that this behavior shows up in both armies. I mean, the old stereotype about the thieving Yankees, you know, the uh, uh, thieving northern host that has descended upon the South and taken everything, that that doesn't show up in the historical record. Uh, in fact, uh, both armies are undersupplied. It's just, it's just too much for northern society and southern society to pull this off, to to supply these enormous armies with the material resources that they need to survive. They just don't have the technology, uh, the, the, the means to do that. So when soldiers are out in the field and they're hungry or they need wood for a campfire or they need housing, they turn to civilians. And men in both armies are very direct <laughs> about asserting what they call military necessity, that's a phrase that turns up over and over again in the manuscripts. Uh, officers and men in the ranks declare that the military needs must come first, and civilians have to give in. So this is not a phenomenon that only shows up in one army. Now, there's supposed to be uh, procedures if, say, uh, the supply trains haven't showed up and the men in a regiment are desperately hungry— a group of soldiers with an officer in command is supposed to go out to seize food. And there's supposed to be uh, paperwork, you know, giving the date, the location, the uh, amount of food that was taken, and the promises that the civilian will be uh, reimbursed at some point during or after the war. But I discovered that it doesn't always work that way. Uh, sometimes small groups of soldiers go out at night because they're hungry, they haven't had enough to eat that day, or they don't like the military rations that they have received, and they decide they're just going to take matters into their own hands. And this is true for Confederate troops as well as uh, as Union troops. And as troops went by, it wasn't just the food, but a horse, a mule mm-hmm, mm-hmm. disappeared. Yes, they, they take livestock, they take timber, they will disassemble uh, a fence, you know, the so-called Virginia fence, the zigzag fence that, that you still see in different parts of the South today. You know, it's a lot easier to disassemble a fence than it is to chop down a tree. Uh, that's one thing I, I learned researching this book. Uh, chopping down a tree is a lot of hard labor. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that takes a, a, a strong person to do that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the wood is also green. So, so if they can take a fence as opposed to having to chop down trees, they will do that. But sometimes they go out with their axes and take down every tree on a farm. And they also were known to disassemble buildings, uh, barns. And homes themselves, they will take apart a house uh, if they need the wood. And the assumption across the board, pardon the pun, (laughs) is that that civilians are supposed to agree. You know, they're supposed to acquiesce. And uh, many civilians don't like this at all. There are verbal protests, reproaches. Civilians, often female, will say, how can you do this to us? I mean, a 
a female unionist might say to a federal soldier, you know, my son is in your army. You know, how can you take away all our fences? And the response comes back, military necessity. And then as the years pass, civilians sometimes decide to take direct action. I found uh, civilians who fire their guns at uh, soldiers who are taking uh, their resources. And sometimes they leave their bodies in the road with a sign on it that says, this is what happens to people who plunder. So I argue that overall, just as there's a, a struggle going on between the two armies, there's also a parallel struggle going on between armies and civilians. And of course, this is going to affect the Southern landscape more because that is the battleground. I'm thinking now of two famous protests about military necessity. Um, the first is James Henry Hammond's uh, protest about the commandeering of slaves to work on mm-hmm, fortifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought it was unconstitutional, improper taking of property, so forth and, and so on. And then there was an upcountry housewife uh, towards the end of the war. They were yeoman farmers. They had, I think, six or seven slaves. And mm-hmm. the local Confederate said, you've got to send some. We need some more. And she said, I've sent my husband off to the war. That's all I'm going to do. Yes. <laughs> that is a typical response from uh, lots of white uh, civilians. Although uh, in my book, I concentrated mostly on the interactions between soldiers and white civilians. Uh, and I uh, steered clear of the issue of the confiscation of slave labor. That That's already been done by quite a few other uh, first-rate scholars, you know, Leon Lidwack, Thavolia Glimp, and everybody in between. Uh, and also the, the policies are different regarding slaves since policy indicates that slaves themselves are contraband. Mm-hmm. That was a term that was coined uh, early in the war. Uh, so my book is mostly about the interactions between uh, soldiers and, yeah. and white uh, civilians. Yeah. But there is that, that growing sense of indignation and outrage that uh, this is a violation of of property rights. No one should have the right to take your house. <laughs> and also, uh, it, in the more existential sense, that these armies are beginning to pose a threat to civilian survival. You know, they, they start to perceive around 1864 or so uh, that the mere presence of one of these armies in the neighborhood will probably mean that many of their resources will disappear. They think that their survival is more important you know, they privilege their own survival over any military objective. One of the stories that has not been told until recently, and it, it's in both of your books, and that is the deforestation of whole seg- sections of the South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, why did that happen? Oh, that's a great question. Soldiers uh, need uh, wood. <laughs> they need uh, timber for their campfires. Uh, they need it to build their winter quarters. They need it to build military hospitals. I mean, wood is a very precious resource in, in time of war. So the armies go out there and start to take down forests. And both of the armies practice what today we would call clear-cutting. That, that term wasn't coined until the 20th century. But what it means is, is they take down every tree in sight. So you have a rather uh, quick and complete transformation of the landscape. And you see this in places where there's very intense fighting, such as northern and central Virginia, central Tennessee, Georgia, and and South Carolina during Sherman's March, where the, the landscape is unrecognizable. Every tree is gone. And soldiers and civilians comment on this, that it looks like the surface of the moon. <laughs> you know, that it's very disorienting and very strange. And people also find it aesthetically displeasing, you know, that the landscape looks very ugly, where a year or two ago there was this beautiful sylvan forest. Now there's just hard packed earth. And what happens when it starts to rain <laughs> is that those places turn into mud baths. And they pose all kinds of logistical threats and health threats. Uh, It's very hard to move armies across a muddy uh, landscape. And there are numerous accounts of soldiers and sometimes livestock that drowned inside of these mud baths, you know, these mud holes 
that are a lot deeper than they might look at first glance, and a man disappears in it, and he never comes back up again. Or, you know, teams of horses. Uh, and also, uh, mud is a vector for disease. You know, bacteria, all kinds of illness. As Mark Smith has noted, mm-hmm. this changed, changes the whole soundscape in, oh, yes. in terms of battle, because a forest will muffle the sound, whereas... Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, people talk about that, the the uh, peculiar silence that pervades these bare landscapes. You know, there there are no humans, there's no bird life, there's no animal life. It's this very stark, austere uh, landscape with a stark silence as well. One of the scholars you refer to in your introduction, Professor Bell Wiley, mm-hmm. who for many years his work was put away as being old-fashioned, but he really did deal with everyday life in the Confederate Army and the Union Army. He did. He wrote some very valuable books uh, years ago, decades ago, about the experiences of the average soldier, Johnny Reb and Billy Yank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he talks about this, you know, at least at some length, he talks about the fact that soldiers will take food. And he doesn't really grapple very long with the ethical or moral questions. In fact, he says that, you know, he would he would rather not go there. <laughs> but but he was decades ahead of, of the rest of the profession in acknowledging this and and addressing this at, at least as a as a potential uh, uh, problem. Let's move on into the the text itself. What would you like to talk about first? Well, why don't we talk about food? Okay. Because human beings need food to survive. All right. (laughs) One thing I found when I was researching the uh, antebellum chapter, you know, the book opens with a survey of what life was like in a small town in rural South before uh, the war. And I also have uh, some discussion of the North. I argue that uh, this is a agricultural region that is very productive. There's a lot of food. There's enough food. And an occasion if there are bad harvests or bad weather that neighbors share with each other. You know, that's the expectation. There's this uh, ethic that I call communalism, where people believe they have some obligations to each other. You know, the antebellum South is not a utopia, of course. You know, there are disputes and rivalries inside of the white population in every county. Uh, you know, it's not a it's not a perfect society by any means, but uh, human beings do believe that they are supposed to help people who are hungry, and most of the time they do. Well, when the war breaks out, uh, both armies need food. You know, that's a physical requirement. They have to have food to survive. And soldiers barrel out of camp to get something to eat, uh, as I said earlier, when they either have no rations or they don't like the quality of the food or they're bored with the food. And uh, at first, some civilians are generous. You know, if they're strongly pro-Confederate, they are happy to have some officers over for dinner. If they're strongly pro-Union, they are happy to share their corn crop with some federal troops. Uh, But as time goes by and the scale of the struggle intensifies and the, the armies get bigger, the civilians begin to pull back. And they begin to realize uh, that these armies might take away food that is necessary for their own survival. And that that becomes the priority. And I found that there's an especially intense uh, struggle over meat. Meat is a basic part of the diet before the war. Uh, Lots of people are meat lovers, uh, soldiers and civilians talk about how tasty it is. And they also perceive it as an excellent protein source. And the idea pervades both armies that warriors need meat. You know, other sources of protein are all right, fish is all right, but really they need meat, and they especially need beef, you know, especially beef uh, from cattle on the hoof. And both armies have herds of cattle following them or, you know, guided along by quartermasters and their assistants. But sometimes that herd isn't adequate to feed a regiment for a long period of time. So they turn to the beef cattle 
grazing in the fields of the South. <laughs> and they take what they feel they have to have. And uh, civilians, again, are uh, appalled by this. You know, they think that the food supply on their farm or their plantation, that it belongs to them. <laughs> and they are not going to share it uh, with strangers, especially if it means that their own children might uh, have to go hungry. So uh, there, there's this uh, protracted and intense struggle over food, especially over uh, meat and, and beef. Uh, and, and, th and that is something you see all over the South. Okay. Joan, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Joan Cashin of The Ohio State University about her latest book, War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and, and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. Early in the war, and this is eight, summer of 1861, Hamburg, Tennessee, actually that's 1862, this farmer, they took his horses, his pork, his wheat, with no documents and no compensation. Then they set fire to his corn crib to cover their retreat from Union forces. <laughs> and you can go across the South, and it, it's really kind of heartwarming because, you know, this isn't Tara or Twelve Oaks that's being looted. This is the white yeomanry of the American South. It is. And that's one thing that surprised me, honestly, when I was doing research. Uh, I found out that uh, middle-class people and working-class people, including yeoman farmers, were, were targeted. Uh, sometimes soldiers will head for a plantation because they assume that plantations have more resources, uh, and often they do. But sometimes the... They are moving quickly across the landscape, and they will stop at the first farm they see. And if it's Mr. Smith, who owns 50 acres of land, they will still take everything he's got, you know, as opposed to Mr. Jones, who lives down the road and owns 3,000 acres of land. Uh, they're, these armies are big and fast-moving, and they will uh, seize property from just about anybody they encounter. And, of course, as the battlefield moves back and forth across the landscape, the armies may visit a particular household more than once. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And, and civilians really don't like that at all. Uh, and, and they complain bitterly about it. Although there are uh, some civilians who try what might be broadly described as reverse psychology, there was uh, one white family that uh, gave some soldiers a very fine meal and some glasses of beer. And after that, they just didn't have the heart to take anything else from this family. <laughs> and, and a white woman who was uh, sitting down to eat with her family when uh, soldiers burst in and took the food off the table, she sat there quietly and said nothing with a bland smile on her face, according to an eyewitness. And that shamed uh, the soldiers. So the troops left the house. Well, you've also got accounts, and again, this is, you know, both armies. Sometimes they took what they needed, but if there was anything left over, they destroyed it to keep the enemy from getting it. <laughs> yes, yes. That, that, that really surprised me. Uh, accounts of soldiers uh, pouring a flour uh, out on the ground and then, you know, walking back and forth on top of it to make sure that nobody could ever use it or, or pouring uh, food uh, down a well uh, because they understand that the enemy might show up in a day or two and get those resources as well. So they want to make sure that, that the other army doesn't get access to that food. Uh, and there was also a lot of uh, arson, what I call preemptive arson, where soldiers set fire to uh, forests, or they sometimes will set fire to houses uh, to make sure that nobody else can get that house or get the resources inside of the house. So there's a, a wholesale assault on the environment, on the food environment, on the forest, and on the built environment. Joan, this mm -hmm. foraging, and by the way, I loved it when you said forage, it's both a verb and a noun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> took place on, on both sides. And mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, you talked about fire and changing the landscape. And late in the war, in and around Richmond, when 
the forest was set ablaze, either accidentally or on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it proved tragic for the wounded who were trapped. Yes. Yes, uh, wounded soldiers uh, would sometimes suffocate or even uh, burn to death. You know, so soldiers can die from a fire uh, even if they're uh, not necessarily right next to it. You know, the 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 air itself can kill a soldier if he if he inhales uh, air at a certain uh, uh, temperature. But but in the last year or so of the war, as I argue in the breakdown uh, chapter, that, that's what I call it. You start to see these strange, surreal, and and lurid uh, scenes unfolding in in daily life. I found an account of a house that was floating down a river with some dead bodies inside of it. You know, the family that had died was still visible inside the house. Uh, Near the end in Richmond, there are wagons that are set on fire and left in the roads uh, to uh, burn uh, up. Uh, And I also uh, talk about the physical manifestations of the dead. Uh, Obviously, many, many soldiers die in the war. Many of them are buried quickly. They're often buried in shallow graves in somebody's front yard or backyard or by the side of the road. And one thing that uh, soldiers and civilians talk about is the uh, visual the projection of the human hand uh, reaching up from the grave. People talk about this over and over again. The the public seems to be sort of preoccupied with it. And I I think it's because it symbolizes the dead reaching back to the living. You know, it symbolizes the the tremendous loss, the tremendous fatalities. Uh, And and people get more and more desensitized to that. You know, uh, scenes of dead bodies that, that were... Uh, gruesome and almost unbearable early on in the war, people start to get used to it. Well, there are descriptions from women's diaries. By the end of the war, they talk about, oh, so-and-so, did you hear he was killed at Chancellorsville? Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. And then just just moved on because they had become, as this one diarist said, Emma Lacan, they had become inured to death. Mm -hmm. It It happened so much. Now, in in talking about fire, we, of course, need to get to – it wasn't just Sherman coming through South Carolina, but <laughs> – I uh, knew his name would come up again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are from Georgia. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but houses were set on fire for a variety of reasons. Any house that was abandoned seemed mm-hmm. to be fair game to be destroyed. Right, because they, they often uh, – Union troops would assume – that that must be the house of a secessionist or a Confederate, or, or they wouldn't flee. You know, overlooking the fact that both armies actually pose a threat to all civilians. <laughs> and depending upon the battle site, whether it's, it's Nashville or Petersburg, houses could be demolished to, uh, uh, as we used to say in the Army, clear fields of fire. Exactly, just to get them out of the way. And, and I, I found these... Uh, succinct and pithy little comments in military correspondence where an officer would say, uh, houses destroyed as ordered. <laughs> uh, all the housing taken down as uh, the general ordered because the the built landscape is expendable. You know, if, if they can advance their military objectives by taking down a house or a whole group of houses or setting fire to them, then that's what they will do. In terms of military conduct, both sides were taking uh, not just prisoners, but hostages. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, that, that really surprised me. Uh, one or two other scholars have mentioned this in passing, but I think my f- book is the first one that discusses this at any length. Uh, uh, both armies, as you say, will take civilians as hostages. And this is a practice that goes way back in human history uh, and happened, you know, in World War I and World War II. It, it was finally banned in the 20th century, but it's practiced quite widely during the Civil War. Soldiers will take a civilian or two or three or more. Sometimes, you know, they'll take a couple of dozen people and they hold them as hostages to get the other army to do something. Sometimes it's to force the other army to release 
uh, an officer who is a POW, or they want to engage in a hostage trade. You know, they want to trade some civilians for some other civilians being held by the other army. And there's no real policy on this. Franz Lieber issues his code, uh, so-called the Lieber's Code, in the spring of 1863, and he says that hostages should be treated fairly and with respect and so on. But I found that Lieber doesn't have much impact on behavior in the field. And some of these hostages are treated rather badly. Some of them die in the hands of the two armies. So civilians themselves are, as you said a moment ago, a kind of resource. By the end of the war, mid-1864 until the end, in, in mm-hmm. the spring of 65, mm-hmm. um, where once there might have been at least un- some kind of understanding between the army and civilians, too much has happened, too much blood's been shed, and vengeance seems to be pretty common on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're back to Sherman now, and some of his army are singing, Hail Columbia, happy land, you'll be burned or we'll be damned, uh, just outside the capital city of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. In, in my book, I give a qualified defense on Sherman. I point out that he is the figure who was singled out and demonized as the ultimate thieving, destroying Yankee, but that other uh, federal commanders, other officers, other federal troops in the ranks did much the same thing, and so did Confederate uh, officers. A woman in Georgia said in the last year of the war that there wasn't much difference between uh, Joseph Wheeler, the Confederate commander, and William T. Sherman. So uh, that realization is very fully documented by the time the war ends in the spring of 65. And for another year or so, I found considerable evidence of civilians who will admit that in writing to each other. They'll they'll say things in interviews with journalists that, yes, uh, both armies pillaged. Yes, both armies took from us. But uh, relatively quickly, that realization or that statement of fact uh, starts to disappear. And the lost cause mentality uh, is created. It's often created very deliberately by uh, ex-Confederates who want to create uh, a series of uh, comforting uh, and ultimately false uh, ideas about what happened during the war. One of the key parts of the lost cause culture is that the Yankee army was so uh, deeply destructive, you know, that they took uh, everything and that the Confederate army refrained from such behavior, that, that's simply not true. And also the corollary is that all white Southerners were united in their support of the Confederacy. That, that's not true uh, either. Uh, men from uh, every Confederate state uh, served in the Union Army. The usual estimate by historians is 100,000 white men. Plus there are the actions of white women, you know, women who can't vote, obviously, women who can't serve in the military or aren't supposed to serve, they can nonetheless express their political loyalties in different ways. And those people whom scholars call uh, unionists, you know, union with I-S-T on the end is the suffix, uh, those people are quickly forgotten, sort of uh, obliterated from the collective uh, historical memory. So I think that the, the lost cause... Uh, culture uh, misrepresents what happens during the war. And and it's unfortunate uh, because it is based on these distortions and and inaccuracies, but it's had a very long afterlife. You know, it's lasted uh, in some ways right down to the present. I I was going to say, as the late Tom Connolly said, the war is still not over yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. For some people. Yes, well, you know, I, I teach the Civil War at Ohio State, been teaching it a long time, and my students often have very decided opinions about the war, <laughs> and not all of them are pro-Union, and I also can see this when I give public history lectures. Uh, sometimes the Q&A uh, afterwards uh, can be quite spirited. Uh, many Americans have opinions on the war. They have sometimes deeply held convictions 
that they wish to express. <laughs> so it's something that the public cares a great deal about. It's not just academics, you know, burrowing away in the archives. The, the American people, the American public also cares a great deal. Well, Joan Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, and so okay. how about some last words for our listeners before we do sign off? Well, I just hope everyone will remember that war is a very serious business. Uh, war is not a cartoon. You know, it's not an app on somebody's phone. Uh, war always involves the destruction of material resources, and war, if it lasts any period of time at all, always involves uh, civilians. I mean, civilians are not spectators. You know, they don't watch the war unfolding. They are a part of the war uh, themselves. All right. Well, Professor Joan Cashin of The Ohio State University, thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've known Professor Joan Cashin for quite a while, admired her work on the antebellum era in American history, and her moving into material culture and using something other than a document to write history, although clearly she has mined diaries and letters. She's mined them not so much for what happened on the battlefield, but how did the war impact the use of something at home, at the front? What were soldiers thinking about in terms of material items that were important? War matters and war stuff are interesting reads and explore an older topic in new ways and in fascinating ways. And all of this, of course, relates to the history of South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for Walter more Edgar's of the Journal. Journal is a production Walter of Edgar's South Journal Carolina Public is a production Radio. of South Carolina the producer Public and Radio. Engineer is Alfred the producer Turner. and engineer production is of this Alfred program Turner. is made possible production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.